Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Happy barbecue season, Ashley McKinless. It is beautiful out in Brooklyn. I'm getting the backyard prepped. I'm really morphing into... um, like neighborhood dad mode Uh, (laughs) got the weber grill going life is good right now yeah it is though it's time for me to bring out my uh air conditioning unit because it's in the 80s now and a little toasty yeah no it it, that is uh getting there um it's only a matter of time before we're able to hit coney island once once again Uh, can't wait Speaking of something refreshing, what are you drinking this week, Zach? So it's a bit of a chaotic scramble to find some drinks. We'll explain in a bit. But I've got a uh, Harpoon Rec League beer, which was just on hand because uh, my wife and I think you moved one of our mutual yes. friends this this past weekend. And I missed all of that, but I'm benefiting from some of the beer that was uh, acquired <laughs> in the spoils. And what yeah. do you have? Uh, I know you're going to make fun of me, but this is also just the only things that I had in my uh, apartment. Uh, and it is gin and soda. And by soda, I mean uh, Diet 7-Up that I bought this morning because it looked really refreshing. <laughs> I've never looked at Diet 7-Up and thought that, but so I can't relate. But I do appreciate your willingness to be honest about the yeah, garbage I know I'm things get you drink. Yeah, I'm going to torn apart for this. Yeah, it's still better than your Irish <laughs> are you coffee will- one Are you time. willing to uh, cheers me still? I will cheers you. <laughs> okay, cheers. <laughs> All right. And who are we talking to this week, Zach? We've got a bit of a different show this week. Um, We wanted to, someone in a Facebook group asked if we were going to cover what's going on in Israel, Palestine. And we wanted to be able to, we thought we'd already been thinking about that and we wanted to do that justice. Um, And, you know, don't necessarily feel equipped ourselves to really break down what's happening. And so we found someone who uh, I think you'll, you'll come to see is really an expert in this. Right. So we brought on Father David Neuhaus. Uh, Father Neuhaus was, is a, a Jew of German descent who was born in South Africa, moved to Israel in his teens, got his citizenship, and then eventually converted to Catholicism and became a Jesuit priest. And so he is deeply knowledgeable about about what's going on there, um, not only the current conflict, but some of you know the the decades of history that that really need to inform the way we think about this. So we had intended to just bring him on for signs of the times to break the story down for us. But once we had him on the phone, uh, we figured we should uh, keep him on as long as we could to to help us really grapple with with what's happening in Israel and Palestine right now. Yeah. And just a word of editorializing here a little bit, if if Father Noyes is going to explain like Christians got to have skin in the game here. Um, we've been part of the problem. We need to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And even if you, don't, you know, not necessarily hiding, but feel like you're just throwing your hands up in the air because it is so 
complicated and such an intractable conflict. This is a really informative interview with with Father Neuhaus, and I think it'll make you feel more equipped to to think about this issue and think about um, what what you can do about it. Yeah, so we've got a great conversation coming up with Father Neuhaus from Jerusalem. But first, we wanted to share with you a few words about our sponsor this week. Yeah. So, Zach, when's the last time you felt like you learned something new? You know, I, one of the great benefits of this podcast is literally every time <laughs> every we week. sit down to record, <laughs> I'm I'm just constantly like amazed by some of the people we talk to who are way smarter than me. Yes. But I, I, that's why I love doing this because I love, you know, learning all the time. Right. And you can learn something new on demand anytime you want just by downloading an app on your smartphone by visiting the Great Courses Plus and getting a membership. Yeah, this is definitely a streaming service that's a must-have for for people who who like to learn, as as we mentioned. It's and we've got an incredible deal for our listeners. You can get a free trial, plus get twenty percent off when you sign up for the annual membership. Um, but to get that, you have to go to our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com/jesuitical, um, and that's really going to give you a world of knowledge for less than what most of us pay for a coffee each month. You mentioned it was barbecue season. It is also camping season. If, yes. if you don't feel totally confident in your camping or outdoor skills, The Great Courses Plus has a course for you. Yeah. So it's Ignatian year. We talked to uh, Father General of the Society of Jesus last week. Um, and Ignatius is famous for, you know, telling people, you know, go forth and set the world on fire. And you really can't set the world on fire if you don't know how to start one. Right. And so if you want to learn how to build a fire, along with many other outdoor skills, you can go to The Great Courses Plus and listen to Outdoor Fundamentals, everything you need to know to stay safe. And I think we should say that St. Ignatius was not being literal literal when he said set the world on fire. And so this course also teaches you fire safety so that you make sure you do not start a forest fire. That's right. And it's taught by a world-renowned professor like all of The Great Courses Plus courses are. So Professor uh, Elizabeth K. Andre is an associate professor of nature and culture in outdoor our education department at Northern College, which is, I just want to say, an awesome title, probably dream job for a lot of people. And she teaches the Outdoor Fundamentals course, but you can check out that one or hundreds of other courses. They've got all kinds of stuff in economics and food and wine, history, religion, literature, math. They've, they've really got it all. And so you can check out all of that when you sign up for a free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical. Use that URL so that they know we sent you. And now stick around for our conversation with Father David Neuhaus. Joining us from Jerusalem is Father David Neuhaus. Father Neuhaus is an Israeli Jesuit and the superior of the Jesuit community in Jerusalem. Welcome to Jesuitical, Father Neuhaus. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be with you. It's a real honor and privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking time. I know things are are crazy right now, so we really appreciate it. And our, our listeners have been asking for some some help unpacking some of this, so we're hoping you can do that for, for us and for them. Um, I guess one place to start would be I, I think a lot of American Catholics are, are are sort of comfortable hiding in this sense of, um, you know, it's a very complicated issue that's really far away when they think about Israel and Palestine. And before we may get into the most recent escalation that's been dominating headlines, I'm, I'm wondering if you could try to explain the root of the problem. Like you were talking to someone who 
is confused as to why this pops up every few years. So I think that the image that has been coming to me over and over again is we are living in Israel-Palestine at the center of a festering and untreated wound. And this wound is a product of the events that took place in the 1940s of the 20th century. Of course, there was a buildup to reach the 1940s. But I think that what happened as a result of the 1947-1948 events, the war that the Israelis call the War of Independence and the Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe, left us with the following reality, and here is real, the, the, really the center of this wound, that the Israelis got a homeland. In fact, the state of Israel was born, so there were no Israelis back then. But the Jews who were seeking for a homeland received a homeland and world recognition for that homeland. The Palestinians who were promised a homeland received nothing. They received a regime of occupation, of discrimination, and this has been dragging on for 73 years. 73 years, of course, I'm doing the arithmetic, from 1948 to 2021. And so it is absolutely not a surprise that violence breaks out from time to time as this wound continues to fester. And the wound that festers fosters ideologies that are ideologies of hatred, of revenge, and violence. And I would say on both sides, as on the one side, Palestinians live in these regimes of occupation and discrimination, depending, of course, where they are on the map. And Israelis live in a system that provokes fear, fear of revenge, fear of retaliation. And so anger and fear are really two very strong products of this festering wound, and it breaks out into vicious violence at certain times. And we're going through one of these times right now. So you were actually born to German Jewish parents in South Africa um, and moved to Israel in your 20s and converted to Catholicism. I'm wondering how your experience being part of the Jewish diaspora that, you know, was, you know, part of what, you know, why Israel exists. They they were a part of a diaspora and they wanted a homeland after the experience, you know, after the experience of World War II. And how, so how has your experience shaped your understanding of this conflict? So a little correction, I moved to Israel when I was 15 years old. I became an Israeli citizen when I was 17 years old. And so, yes, I am a Jewish Israeli for the purposes of the state of Israel. And I have no problem identifying as a Jewish Israeli when it comes to my own living in Israel, identification with this land and with the people who live in this land. And of course, yes, my background does place me into... The Jewish people, the Jewish people that got a very bad deal in the history of of their living among, yes, I say Christians I in Europe, and it led them to this hunger uh, for a place of safety. And the ideology that was born at the end of the 19th century, 
that was not immediately accepted by all Jews, but many Jews would identify with it today, is an ideology that finds its place within the various forms of nationalism that were born in the 19th century. This dream of returning, again, is it a return? Is it not a return? Is a huge debate. But coming to a land where they would be able to have a homeland. And again, uh, the Jewish people were shocked to find out that that land was occupied by another people. And this, of course, is where when I arrived at the age of 15 and was exposed as a young Jewish teenager to the Palestinian Arab narrative, having just emerged from the struggle that was going on in South Africa between blacks and whites and realizing as a white I had little exposure to the black narrative, I said, that's not going to happen again. And so coming to the country, having gone through a Jewish education, knowing Hebrew well, I decided I must learn Arabic, I must find out who the Palestinians are. And this took me on a journey that brings me to a place today where I speak fluent Hebrew, I speak fluent Arabic. I feel almost like Woody Allen in Zelig, a kind of chameleon uh, going from one society to the other, listening closely and trying, of course, to challenge on both sides so that we can move beyond where we are. A big problem, we have this huge problem in this land, and that is the words that we speak, the language that we use, which is a language of exclusivity. Jews are very, very much exclusive in their concerns for their own security, their own prosperity, their own future. And uh, they act out of a place of woundedness. This is part of that festering wound, a woundedness that is a historical woundedness, uh, where something like the Shoah, the Holocaust, is very immediate. And of course, I will add, as a critical comment, it is also exploited by our political leadership so that it remains at a, as a central focus point in Jewish consciousness in Israel. And on the other side, Palestinians, who I repeat once again and will repeat ad nauseum, either live under Israeli occupation in the territories that were occupied by Israel in 1967, or live under a regime of discrimination as citizens of the state of Israel, but without the equality that that citizenship should imply, they too are carrying an incredible woundedness from the catastrophe of 1948, losing what they hoped would become their homeland and finding themselves excluded from the decision-making process that plots out what this country will be. And so again, uh, this image of a festering wound out of which surges uh, at varying degrees, anger, hatred, violence, revenge, is really where we have been for a very long time. Can you bring this down um, to kind of the day-to-day -day level? What is, what is life like for Palestinians, both those who are in Israel and those living in, in the West Bank and Gaza? Okay, so let's start <clears throat> with the Palestinians who live under occupation. Those are the Palestinians who live in the West Bank and in Gaza. And of course, one of the most blatant um, injustices that they have to deal with on a really day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis is the lack of freedom of movement. 
the lack of freedom to move around their own living space are controlled by military checkpoints. Um, this extends to the lack of ability to live together as a family if, God forbid, a family is composed of a Palestinian who lives in Jerusalem and a Palestinian who lives in Bethlehem. For those listeners who are not aware, these are two towns that are almost touching each other, but one under strict military occupation, surrounded by the Israeli army, and the other annexed by Israel after 1967. And of course, I'm referring to East Jerusalem, the Arab part of Jerusalem. It means that they do not have the freedom to develop their own society because they are surrounded by an Israeli military presence. People move around with military permits granted by the military or not granted, withheld by the military. So here it is living under a regime of military occupation. Of course, there are little pockets of heavily populated Palestinian areas, for instance, the Gaza Strip, for instance, the big cities of the West Bank, that have a kind of autonomy but they too are surrounded by the Israeli army. And Gaza, for example, has been under siege for years without the freedom for its people who live there to go in and out of Gaza to, to import, export as they, as they seek to develop their society as they might envision it. So that is the regime of military occupation. In terms of the life of a Palestinian Arab inside Israel, who is a citizen of the state of Israel, who has the right to vote, who can participate in political process, the reality is one of discrimination in terms of development. How much money is spent on the Jewish sector and how much on the Arab sector? This is absolutely blatant when a person, Israeli, Palestinian, or foreigner, would visit a town like Nazareth. Ah, uh, Nazareth is a particularly good example because there is a Jewish part of the town that has just been renamed with an Israeli name, and an Arab part of the town, the, the Jewish-Israeli part, is a new part. Ah, uh, and one sees there the absolute distinction in terms of infrastructure, in terms of access to facilities, how many libraries, how many parks, how many kids in a classroom. This extends to who can build where, when, who receives jobs, where and when. And so this is more a regime of discrimination. And here, one of the big, big challenges is to develop a civil rights movement inside Israel that can make people aware of how impoverished we are by the lack of equality for the citizens of the state of Israel. By the way, one of the shocking for many Israelis, shocking. I think for those of us who know the interior of these cities well, it was not so shocking, is that the violence that broke out was violence coming from Gaza, missiles shot into Israel because of Israeli attempts to change the status quo in Jerusalem and using violence to change that status quo. But violence also broke out inside Israel proper, in the towns where there are Jews and Arabs living in the same towns. And for, for decades, we've talked about this myth of coexistence. But in fact, that coexistence depended upon Arabs accepting their inferior status and just coming to terms with 
the discrimination that they face in their daily lives. And so there is a lot of anger under the surface that once again has exploded, boiled over in these recent events. I'm wondering if you could give us the perspective from from Israelis who say, you know, they have they have a right to exist in this nation state. They have the right to defend themselves when actors such as Hamas are lobbing rockets into their territory. So what's driving this conflict from their perspective? So I think that Israelis indeed feel that they have a right to defend themselves. And I think that is a right that no one can take away from them. But of course, I think that it is part of the the process of discovering that your right to security cannot be based upon regimes of occupation and discrimination. Choosing to occupy another people, to discriminate against others, is choosing to live in insecurity because you are making choices that put other people under the pressure of uh, then reacting with anger, with a desire for revenge. So again, yes, Hamas has chosen a strategy of violence. As many will point out, Hamas has part of its charter calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. But we must remember that Hamas is another one of these hateful ideologies born out of the festering wound that preceded the existence of Hamas. Hamas did not suddenly just appear out of nowhere. Hamas is a reaction, a reaction to occupation and discrimination. And if Hamas receives support, it receives support from people who are suffering under these regimes and see no other option. So that I think that one of the things that is so important for us as Israelis to understand is that if we continue walking this path of choosing to occupy another people and choosing to impose a regime of discrimination, we are walking a path towards suicide. And that the only path for us is really to seek out a way wherein all peoples can live together in this region. It is important to point out that right now, between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, we are about 50-50 Palestinian Arabs, Israeli Jews. There are two possible solutions to our dilemma that will lead beyond this suicidal violence, this choice of oppressing or rejecting the other. The two choices are a two-state solution, which was, by the way, the original idea in 1947 when the United Nations sought to recognize a Jewish homeland and at the same time insist on the establishment of a Palestinian homeland. That goes back all the way to 1947, 74 years ago, a vision that was never realized. Okay, the war took place. Israel occupied much more than what the United Nations uh, actually gave to to be the, the state, the Jewish state. And we continue in a dynamic where the Jews have a home a home that functions, a home that is for the most part prosperous, a home that has become a major economic, military, and social force in the world. And the Palestinians are still relegated to to nothingness. All that the Palestinians have been handed is a dysfunctional Palestinian authority 
that simply has not guaranteed any kind of prosperity or any kind of functional regime for the Palestinians who live within those small pockets that were actually handed over to some kind of Palestinian autonomy. So again, I think that there are Israelis and there are many Jews in the world and many people of goodwill who realize that it is in Israel's best interest to end the occupation. It is in Israel's best interest to make sure that the Arab citizens of Israel receive equality if we are to have a two-state solution, which is still supported by the majority of the international community. Now, to be perfectly honest, living here, I start to see that the two-state solution is almost impossible now, which means that there is another alternative. And I think that we need to talk about this more loudly and more clearly. And that is that Israel, that is now controlling the whole of the territory in the exclusive interest of the Jewish people, is creating a one-state reality. And in that one-state reality, the challenge for me and for Israelis and Palestinians who think like me will be the struggle for equality. This is, of course, a choice that is being made by annexing more land, taking control of more and more homes, trying to evict more and more Palestinians from areas that are considered areas for Jewish population growth. And ultimately, what is being done is destroying all possibility of a two-state solution. So we move to a one-state solution where the struggle will really be the struggle for civil rights. It will be a struggle for equality. It will be a struggle in which all people who live in this land will be citizens of one state with the rights, the full rights of citizens. And again, and I think this makes many Israelis scared because of their desire to have a Jewish state, we are right now 50-50. 50% of the population is Jewish, 50% of the population is Palestinian Arab in the territory between the, the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. Now that we've got, I, I, I think this all of this context, and as you say, this festering wound is so important to to establish first before we get into maybe the specific conflicts. But maybe with all of that in mind, what's going on? What's going on now? Why did this? Why did this happen right now? The way it's sort of spilled into international headlines. So, of course, again, not a surprise. Uh, when you live in the midst of a festering wound, you expect. Are these eruptions of, of hatred and violence. What happened is that, as you probably know or should know, we have just ended in uh, this part of the world the month of Ramadan. And the month of Ramadan is a time of joy in the Muslim world, uh, fasting and Jerusalem being a very, very important city because of the Haram al-Sharif, uh, the noble sanctuary where we have the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, becomes a real focal point. 
So Ramadan began on the 12th of April. Jerusalem was already very, very tense. Jerusalem has been tense for, for months and years. The regime of occupation in East Jerusalem is not even clearly a military occupation because Israel has annexed the entire territory and has been building settlements around Jerusalem, separating Jerusalem from the rest of the West Bank, which is its natural environment. And most recently, of course, the United States administration under Donald Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem, which seemed to be, and indeed to all of us it seemed, to be a full gung-ho support for the right-wing government that we have at the moment, Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, what happened at the, at the beginning of the month of Ramadan was that Muslims flow into the old city to go and pray in the mosques. And when they come out, uh, they come out through a particular gate, Damascus Gate, and they suddenly found that the Israeli police had established all kinds of barricades in the area of Damascus Gate, making it impossible for them to congregate there. And again, this was seen as simply part of the attempt to control East Jerusalem, to make Palestinian Arab residents of East Jerusalem and all Muslims who flow to Jerusalem more and more unwelcome in their own city. And this led to confrontations, angry young people taking to the streets, uh, refusing to accept these barricades. Of course, again, the barricades were simply the straw that broke the camel's back. So much else is going on in Jerusalem. And I might mention two other things that were going on simultaneously. One was the Israeli legal process to evict 28 Palestinian families from a neighborhood about a mile away from the area that we're talking about, Sheikh Jarrah. Again, many Israelis might explain, but the properties they lived in originally belonged to Jews. Now, that is a legitimate, ah, a legitimate claim. But of course, once again, the claiming of properties inhabited by Palestinians that once belonged to Jews, a process that has been going on for decades, okay, particularly in Jerusalem, is exclusively available to Jews. It's only former Jewish property that is now being reclaimed for Jews. But of course, there is a much more extensive Palestinian set of properties, homes and fields and businesses from before 1948 that were confiscated. And so again, the frustration of feeling that the law is being used to promote exclusive Jewish control in East Jerusalem was certainly part of the anger. Another part of the anger was that the Palestinian Authority had announced that an election was coming. And it's clear that the Palestinian Authority was not really interested in the election. And the fact that the Israelis made it very clear that there would be no electoral process in East Jerusalem, even though, of course, according to international law, East Jerusalem is part and parcel of the West Bank and Gaza that were supposed to undergo the election process. And so the Palestinian Authority used that as an excuse to cancel the elections. And so again, something else that added to the seething anger and the barricades was the last straw. And so demonstrations broke out. There were scenes of Israeli soldiers, policemen going into the Haram al-Sharif, confronting the, the demonstrators, and it became very, very ugly. 
Just as that was happening, ten days after the beginning of Ramadan, a group of very extremist Jews, really our fringe of fascistic racists, decided to march to Damascus Gate, to the same gate where people flow into the old city during Ramadan. This was on the 22nd of April. They decided to hold a, a march to restore Jewish pride. Why were they interested in restoring Jewish pride? Because a group of young Arabs, as acts of bravado, as expressions of their frustration and anger, had been slapping up Jews and filming themselves do it. And this march was to catch them and beat them up. Of course, catch them and beat them up was to catch any Arab and beat up any Arab. Again, it was very surprising for many of us that the Israeli police allowed this group to gather hundreds of people and march towards Damascus Gate. Thanks be to God, their path was blocked by the police. They could not reach the gate, but they turned around and beat up Arabs wherever they found them on their path back to West Jerusalem. And meanwhile, the demonstrations intensified. And then suddenly on the 25th of April, the barricades were allowed to be removed. Never an explanation about why they were put there in the first place. And so tension running very, very high. And then on the 8th of May, very important time in the month of Ramadan, Laylatul Qadr. Laylatul Qadr is a wonderful time. Intense prayer experience is had by those who flock in their hundreds of thousands in regular times to the Haram Sharif to pray, to spend time together, to celebrate, to sing. It's a commemoration of the beginning of the revelation of the Quran to Muhammad. A really important time. And the Israelis, once again, inexplicably, was this just to show who's in control, blocked many, many buses of Muslims flowing in from northern Israel, from the center of Israel. Of course, in Palestine, where COVID is running wild, many Muslims could not come. And that was understandable, ah, with COVID running wild. I might add as a little insertion, we didn't understand why Israel did not share the vaccine with Palestinians. That was another incomprehensible act of discrimination, of occupation. But anyway, the buses were blocked. It caused big demonstrations. Again, a lot of tension, a lot more violence. And two days after Laylatul Qadr, on the 10th of May, Israeli Jews, mostly the very right wing, celebrated the anniversary of the conquest of East Jerusalem. On the 8th, Laylatul Qadr, on the 10th, Jerusalem Day. And part of Jerusalem Day is a march by young people singing very nationalistic songs, waving Israeli flags, and they march through the old city. Each year, they march through Damascus Gate. Again, Damascus Gate at the center of this. And it's exactly then, ah, the march, thank God, at the last minute was blocked. But Hamas then said, if Israeli troops are not removed from these very sensitive areas in the old city, including at the gates of the Haram sharif and in the Haram sharif they will start to send missiles into Israel. And that's when it began. Israelis then terrified, and rightfully so, 
Ah, a number of Israelis have been killed. But of course, the response of Israel was to start to blast Gaza. And so we have hundreds of people killed in Gaza, extensive damage to property. And we are still in that right now. Okay, as we speak tonight on the 19th of May, uh, bombarding is still going on. Although, finally, the United States administration, finally, President Biden seems to have been a little bit more strong with Netanyahu, saying that he would like this violence to come to an end. But it's been going on uh, for nine days, and the destruction is absolutely terrible. Again, Israelis are terrified, and I, as an Israeli, feel with them. People are running for shelter in the middle of the night. Children are absolutely traumatized inside Israel. But at the same time, the hell in Gaza, where there's nowhere to run to, and where Israeli warplanes are bombing, there again is an incredible inequality in this horrendous war. I don't even know what it means to have a war in which there's equality. But again, it shows that we are in this festering wound. And, you know, <laughs> our Prime Minister Netanyahu and many of us feel that a lot of this violence, these inexplicable acts of aggression, were created within his own circle so that he would stay in power. He is struggling to stay on as Prime Minister. In the last elections, they were completely inconclusive, as have been the elections over the last two years. We've had a number of them. And so he knows uh, that when Israelis are under threat, they come together, they unite. And I think he's hoping that in this threat, they will unite around him. And unfortunately, it's starting to happen that part of the opposition to him is cracking as they see him as the strong leader that can lead us out of this. But anyway, we see that. He has a role in provoking this and not being interested in it coming to an end. Hamas, having no elections to compete in and perhaps win, are also gaining uh, a certain popularity by these missiles sent and by the damage they create and the fear and the, the unrest that is being created in Israeli society. And so again, the festering wound is fostering this kind of dynamic. And we cry out, until when? Until when will this go on? I'm wondering if there's anything that, I, I guess first is, is there an argument for why maybe Christians outside of the region sh should should care about this, particularly maybe even if, you, if you'd care to speak to American Christians? And is there anything that we can do from afar to help with this? So I, I can't really tell you why should American Christians be interested in us except to take responsibility. And this goes really for Christians. Our Christians are not divorced from this wound. Christians, to a certain degree, to a certain degree, created the wound with the centuries of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, with the centuries of uh, contempt for Muslims and Islam, Christians have vehicled a discourse that is part and parcel of the wound. And I think that we must be very aware of this. Take responsibility for it. Now, what can you do? And I think that there is many very different things that you can do. Not only be aware, but be so careful of the words that you speak. 
are the words that you speak words that promote justice and build peace? We must be very careful about the language we, we speak. The language we speak really creates the world that we live in. Just as God created the world with a word, the words we use create the worlds in which our children live in, which of course we live in, but even more seriously, our children. And the, and the languages of contempt, the inability to be empathetic, the refusal if I am pro-Jewish, to open myself to the Palestinian narrative, or if I'm pro-Palestinian, to become an anti-Semite, this is not in the least bit helpful. And I would say really to anyone listening, challenge yourselves. Challenge yourselves so that when you look into the eyes of the media and you see Israeli suffering and it's real, you're able to really empathize with that suffering. But when you see Palestinian suffering, it is just as real. And we as Christians have been part of the problem. If we are to be part of the solution, we must really try to become aware of the facts, try to become aware of what it means to live under occupation, try to become aware of what it means to live in a regime of discrimination, and try to become aware of Israeli fear that is generated by the occupation and discrimination that the state of Israel still insists on imposing upon the Palestinian Arabs who live in the areas that Israel controls. Father Neuhaus, I want to I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time um, and informing us and our listeners today. We do have one final question that we that we ask all of our guests on this podcast. If you could canonize one person, Catholic or not living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be and why? So perhaps this is a wonderful opportunity to give credit to the man who helped me develop empathy for the Palestinians without losing at all empathy for the Jews. And he is a man who is still alive. He's very old now, but he is a real source of wisdom and a source of this language that I'm, I'm saying we need to learn the language of respect. His name is Michel Sabah. Michel Sabah was our patriarch, meaning our archbishop, in the Roman Catholic Church from 1987 until he retired in 2008. He is a man who has devoted himself to the church, but also devoted himself to developing a way of thinking and speaking about the Holy Land, about Israel and Palestine, that really promotes the welfare of Palestinians, Muslims and Christians, and Jews, and promotes a Middle East that is open and celebrates its diversity. For me, and I think for many people in the Church of the Holy Land, and for many people who hear his voice, he is a really inspiring figure who has devoted himself to speaking, acting in order to end this conflict and transform the festering wound into an oasis where Jews, Christians, and Muslims, Israelis, and Palestinians can live in a regime of equality and contribute to each other's welfare.
So I mention his name. I'm not sure that any of you have heard of him. I'm hoping that by mentioning his name, you'll go onto the internet and try to find speeches that he's given, words that he's written. He has many detractors, many who hate him, and that is also a sign, probably, that there is something very special about this man and his message. He uh, actually wrote for America just uh, just this past December. So we, we will be sure to introduce our readers to that. And we'll link to that in our show notes. So Father Neuhaus, it's getting late in Jerusalem. I, I Thank you so much for the work that you do there and for taking the time to inform myself and Ashley and our listeners about what's going on in Israel and Palestine right now. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundro. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.